Hello and welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies. I am one of your hosts, Ms. Melmore. And I am the other host, Mr. Craigers. Yes, he is. And tonight, for our 105th episode and our holiday spooktacular episode, we've mm. got several special things lined up. Um, oh. First and foremost, but not first in order, <laughs> but first and foremost, <laughs> as you will have deduced from the title, we are covering 1984's Silent Night, Deadly Night, which oh, is a, a fun, controversial, weirdly... Um, complicated i feel kind of a tragic film um but before we get into that and after we do uh, a little bit of our horror headlines we've got a very special um treat for you all if you'd like to give us the intro for that mr gregors yes we're very lucky and happy to welcome to the show um actor writer director comedian josh rubin um, who will be here primarily to discuss um, his two latest films that he's appearing in as an actor, Blood Relatives and A Wounded Fawn, which you can dis, um, watch on Shudder right now. Um, but we're also going to chat a bit with him about his career in general, um, his start with college humor, his um, writing and directing efforts, and just what he's getting up to for the holidays. Um, and it's going to be a really good time. Yeah, as you all will remember, I think you had Scare Me as like your number one or close to it um, the year it came out. It was definitely the top. It was up there. I think it was the one that you recommended that I go watch when we we sort of pitch each other, which I did and I loved it. So So good, right? I'm excited to listen to to what you all get up to. Yeah, yeah. Um, He's a cool guy and um, we're going to have a cool time. But first, um, let's do some more headlines. Yeah, let's do Honestly, um, as I feel like I've discussed on the show in the past, I somewhat slow down with horror around this mm-hmm. time of year. Because um, oh, you have to watch all your prestige. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy, right? Because this yeah. is Oscar season. I, I love me some Christmas movies. Mm-hmm. But then I, I am also trying to get in horror that I haven't gotten to yet. And it's just mm-hmm. like, there's only so much time in the day. Yeah. Um, and so I have not gotten to a ton of backlog horror, unfortunately. Um, I've watched some of the usual Christmas horrors that I like to watch. Like I've gotten to Krampus this year. Um, yes. Yeah, I remember. And obviously Silent Night, Deadly Night. I want to do Gremlins, you know, that kind of stuff. Black Christmas, of course. Mm-hmm. Um but other than that, I, I think really the only thing I could properly highlight would be um, Wednesday on Netflix. I also watch Wednesday. Okay, so I've only watched the first two episodes. But... Oh, okay. I watched the whole thing. <laughs> okay. What did you think of the show as a whole? I liked it. I mean, it's it's one of those things where you have to like kind of meet it where it is because it is tim burton which means you're going to get a very specific brand of like mid-2000s goth that's Mm. going to like permeate everything but i thought jenna ortega was incredible like i thought she was great in that role um and it's even more like just impressive like looking at like you know like the only other thing i've seen her in is scream and to see her do that and then do this is like just very impressive so good right yeah 
And it overall just ended up being like, you know, it's a fun tone, um, a little bit, you know, goofy. Um, some of the like sort of, you know, the setting and the the characters reminds me a little bit of like, like Chilling Adventures of Sabrina and her going to her like witch school and stuff. But yes, this is a little less annoying than that. Um, but I enjoyed it and I'd, I'd watch another season of it. Yeah, I mean, I I liked the first two episodes. I thought they were cute and interesting. Um, it was fun to see Gwendolyn Christie. Yes, she's great. Uh, she's a highlight. It was great, great to see Christina Ricci. Um, oh my God, when she walked in, I was like, of course they did that. I didn't know she was in it. I didn't either. And I was like, mad respect. Um, and she was a good I, character. Yeah, I like the character so far. And I don't know how much of the rest of the Adams Family are featured in the rest of the season, but I was like, I need more Catherine Zeta-Jones as Morticia. You'll get a little bit more. Um, it's obviously not a ton, but you'll be seeing a couple more Adamses that you have already seen and some that you have not seen yet. Okay, fun. Yeah, so. Um, and I love all the, the behind the scenes pictures of the guy playing Thing, like in the weird like angles they have to get him in to, to get the shot. That was hilarious. Because I had just, until I saw those pictures, I just assumed that thing was like CGI. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. I couldn't tell what it was. And then I saw the pictures of the guy with the hand and then he has like the prosthetic like stuff yeah. or whatever. Um, and then I was like, and I, oh shit, that's awesome. Yeah. And I saw like him getting like makeup done on his hand. Like I saw a video of like them doing his like, it's it's pretty fun. But um, yeah, no, it's, you know, obviously a little bit of like you know good-natured eye roll at like the school for outcasts and like the mm -hmm. fact that they all have sort of their clicky like i'm a werewolf i'm a vampire type deal but um you know ultimately right. ends up like that's the world and it's enjoyable um but yeah i thought it was i thought it was pretty fun yeah 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 like the plot sort of dressing like i don't really care yeah you know, I do think it's funny. Do they ever explain why she's the only one allowed to wear a black school uniform and everyone else is in blue? So in the very first episode, Morticia says something about like Wednesday is allergic to color. And <laughs> so her, I think it's like the roommate, I can't remember, is like, what happens? Yeah. And she's like, I convulsed or something. I have a seizure or something. Um, and it's played as like her, like, you know, deadpan. Wednesday yeah. humor but I was just like I guess that's also true <laughs> they like made a medical exception for her to wear yeah. all black because <laughs> I was like why did they just make the school uniforms black for everybody like I don't understand right? <laughs> <laughs> that seems like it would have been easier way easier but anyway whatever um yeah, whatever. are they doing a second season or is it more a limited series I think they are doing a second season because they've all all the actors have been talking about it and the way it ends they set up for like well it's been like getting huge numbers for netflix like i think it yeah. stranger things and all that so. yeah it's been it's been killing it for them so and i feel like that's all happened like somewhat recently because i feel like it came out around halloween and nobody really started watching it until like four weeks ago yeah it had a late start um which you hardly see anymore because studios like yeah. don't operate that way, but. Yeah. 
but yeah, that's, I mean, that's really all I've, the only thing new I've got really. Well, I watched Wednesday, as we said. Um, I also watched 1899. Ah, I need to get to that. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that's how I feel about it. (laughs) I won't go into detail because I feel like going into any detail is like, spoilers but um mixed things is a good way to put it yeah um, i did also you watch watched, dark? i did watch dark dark was better yeah um That's what i'm hearing i also watched uh troll on netflix have you been seeing ads for this oh not like the old movie no old like it just came out troll oh no okay it's a norwegian film that's basically like a monster movie. Like they basically are like, what if we took a kaiju style monster and set it in Norway? So the plot of this is that like, you know, they're like doing some sort of drilling in a mountain and um, it wakes up like a troll. troll. Like, and he's like a massive, like, you know, Godzilla, like troll. So they get the like um, paleontologist on the, you know, the government calls in this random paleontologist to be on the team. And, you know, you've got the the army guy and you've got the like political um, like cronies who want to like just blow it up and do the missiles. And it's like really good. It was a good movie. It was a lot of fun. That sounds um, really fun. Yeah. And like this troll is like marching through like the Norwegian countryside and then like into Oslo and they're like, they go back to like the mythology and look at what the mythology says about how to defeat trolls. And it's pretty good. I would recommend it's a great creature feature monster movie. That's awesome. They should have called on Mothra to help them. Literally. I was thinking Mothra. about it. I was like, Mothra crawled so this movie could walk. <laughs> so the troll could walk. Um, that sounds really fun. Yeah. Oh. Something else I want to check out that um, I haven't had a chance yet is Christmas Bloody Christmas on Shutter. Oh, is that the one where um, What's-His-Face plays uh, another axe-wielding Santa Claus? That's Violent Night. Violent Night. <laughs> Different, excuse me. Yes, which also I do want to see. David, yeah, David Harbour. Yeah. He's like an avenging Santa, I think, in that one. Like, he's like at it's a also, house. It seems to be like a, a black comedy type deal. Like, yeah, yeah. And then Christmas Bloody Christmas is, I think, a robot Santa that gets a virus and starts killing people. Also, speaking of robots, we got another Megan trailer drop. Oh my god. So that's gonna be I was explaining to Charlotte because I was like, this movie is either gonna be amazing or terrible, and the fact that it comes out in January is just like a total coin flip. <laughs> yep. And I just I just love how quickly the horror community was like, yeah, Megan. <laughs> well, and my one friend referred to the new trailer as like they're embracing her as the queer icon that she is. I keep seeing a lot like crossover with chucky when yeah i think the chucky twitter account has like already said stuff about like (laughs) megan like when the first trailer dropped they like were jawing on twitter amazing but um so we have that to look forward to 
And yeah, the first big horror release of 2023, most likely. (laughs) We'll be Megan leading the charge. Leading the charge through 2023. (laughs) It's going to be, it's a bright year. Yeah, it's a sign of good things to come. Anyway, um, yeah, no, it's like one of those lull periods. It's that that time of year where I stop watching a ton of new things and start to think about like, oh, what did I like? You know, what's my top 10? What did I miss earlier in the year? Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like after like that week after Christmas and leading up to New Year's, I kind of cram in a lot of things that I miss that I think I would really like. Mm-hmm. To, you know, to figure out, you know, top 10 or whatever. Yeah. This was a really, there was a lot of horror this year. There was. Because I keep forgetting that Orphan 2. Yeah. <laughs> or Orphan First Kill, excuse me. Let me use its Christian name. Came out this year. When I, was, I think about, when I like list in my head all the movies I saw, I'm like, all right, Orphan First Kill. Yeah, I know. Yeah, there's some big ones I want to get to, but... I think right now, if I'm remembering my current sort of ranking of things, Nope was my favorite of the year. Oh, yeah. That's again, I'm like, all oh, right, Nope. I saw Nope in theaters. Mm-hmm. Scream came out this year. It sure did. It 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 was our it was our Megan. Of- it was 2022 <laughs> Megan. <laughs> um. Yeah, no, that'll be fun. Or I think we'll have some good rankings this year. I think so too. Yeah. But for right now, I think we will welcome our guest. Um, maybe we'll poke his brain about how he feels 2022 has gone uh for horror. I mean, he has two movies out this year. So <laughs> probably feels pretty good about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um yeah, let's welcome to the show uh, the amazing and talented Josh Rubin. All right, so we are here with our very special guest, Josh Rubin, uh, whose two most recent projects, Blood Relatives and A Wounded Fawn, can now be found on Shudder. But of course, um, many of you know him from Werewolves Within and Scare Me. Um, Josh, you really popped into the horror world within the last couple years. Um, but a lot of people also know you from the realm of comedy with college humor and dropout. And I believe you come from a pretty strong theatrical background. Um, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And that to me has always um, been something that you seem to very clearly bring into your projects like Werewolves Within and Scare Me. Um, Scare Me in particular felt very black box. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And had like that levity to it while still being very much a horror film. Um, so I wanted to like see what do you think it is about that sort of theatrical and comedic background that suits you well to horror? Because you kind of are joining this long line of like traditionally comedic performers that shift into darker territory and get yeah. like acclaim, like Mark Duplass, John Krasinski everybody that was in bodies 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 yeah yeah jordan peele i uh, just realized the other yeah. day even even though you might not consider like joker to be necessarily a horror film todd phillips is such a comedy person that's just kind of wild like zach Kreger. it's 
it's uh it's quite the time for us comedy boys i mean i, th I just speaking for myself i think what it is definitely on the uh on the comedian side i think we're natural well we're naturally sort of i don't want to say dark human beings but we armor ourselves with humor to protect ourselves to protect our vulnerabilities and we're often you know us comics are very kind of we're hurt or we're sensitive um and we're in essence <clears throat> like for me I I'm a mimicker and an observational sort of comedian, so to speak. I'll do a lot of like characters, often weirdly impressions of like narcissistic, toxic men, um, like coworkers cutting off women on Zoom and stuff like that. Which is why it's such a fun to play a narcissistic serial killer because without the murder, he's just a, a mostly a normal uh, peacocking narcissistic dude. But um, but I think what it is about you know as comedians is we we hold the the mirror up to society and like raking certain personalities over the coals and we'd like to push boundaries. And I think that's, I think that's why we make for good genre um, creators because we push and we test and we poke and we prod that we have that little bit of extra kind of observational say humor or uh, spice dare I say. Um, and, you know, as actors too, the theatrical background of it all, it's like, yeah, that to have a language for actors and not micromanage and to just kind of be willing to like play the jazz to let an actor do their thing as opposed to just like, you know, creating this um, this finite playground uh, or, or too much of a finite playground, too limiting of a playground, hardly a playground. Um, that can be the danger. I think actors who uh, who direct are, are, you know, in essence favorable to that regard because they can disarm you with humor, I use humor as my way of disarming people or disarming situations on set, disarming actors, um, disarming, you know, and obnoxious or annoyed producers, um, <laughs> or or just like, you know, um, my history with the film school of like making thousands of college humor videos to just like get through the day and like trying to protect myself and others with like a levity. So I hope that answers your question. Absolutely, it does. Um, I liked what you said about like sort of getting people to drop their guard um, uh, or, you know, like let the walls down, which I feel yeah. like is so much of what the horror you've worked on is a part of. It's like, all right, here's the laughs. Come on in, come on in. Now here's the terror. Yeah, um, yeah. So let's uh, talk a little bit about A Wounded Fawn. Um, which Chatteris, if you haven't checked it out yet, is this wonderfully sort of Fulci-esque um, 70s fever dream aesthetic um, kind of psychological horror. I think a lot of that feel comes from the fact that you guys filmed on 16 millimeter, which is cool. Mm -hmm. um, was, did you feel any extra pressure shooting on film since like in that mm. situation, it's usually like, they say every reel counts or every inch costs. It, it does. Yeah. There's definitely an electricity um, in the air when you hear the the film clacking through the reel. You know, you're 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 definitely on your toes in a way that probably most actors aren't or take for granted when shooting digitally, and they just kind of like to fuck around or do bits or try stuff again or take the floor or whatever. It's like film is only so finite. You know, we only budgeted so many reels per day of our twenty some odd day shoot. Um, so. Uh, yeah, it definitely kind of in a way harkens back to a theatrical experience because it's just you got to learn your lines and be super on um, and uh, be absolutely ready to ready to roll. Um, <laughs> literally, uh, 
yeah so it's i don't know i think i think it kind of harkens back to having a, a kind of classic um just i don't know a uh a, a really good work ethic i'd say just as an actor like a theatrical work ethic yeah 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 so was there i know you just mentioned the 20-day shoot which is not particularly long was there um more rehearsal time like with sarah lynn who by the way you have amazing non-chemistry chemistry work? <laughs> yeah she she and i she's incredible uh she's such a force and she's also like she and i are similar in the sense that we just we like to just dive in and just kind of fuck around we you know learn our lines and do our thing um uh she and travis the co-writer and director the three of us basically sat down and went through the script we just went through we, we didn't have to read through it we just talked about stuff talked about character and everything else and Sarah and I read, I think, all of our scenes together, um, just kind of saying the words, not, no, nothing kind of full emotional, um, as it were, uh, with full emotionality. We, that's just kind of, I don't know, the collaborative kind of easy playground it was. We're just, we, we like to learn our lines and just like get to set and just get right to work and be the, the kind of dream actors we need to be for the director and in this, this essence, Travis. That makes it easy for the director, I imagine. Yeah. Or easier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I uh, want to be that. I want to be the malleable actor for other directors when I do step in front of the camera, you know, because uh, I know how tough it is to to be an obstacle or to have obstacles, you know, in, in your actors when you're just trying to get the image, trying to get the thing done, you know, on the filmmaking side. Right, right. Speaking of images, there's a lot of um, really interesting Greek mythological and folklore imagery in Wounded Fawn, um, obviously because it's sort of a fury story. It seems like there's been a resurgence or a renewed interest in that kind of folk horror lately. Um, I'm thinking of like yeah. Men by Alex Garland earlier this year. Um, mm -hmm. Have you noticed that? Do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, I didn't actually get to see men. I, I really love the work of like Robert Eggers, you know, who's doing, mm -hmm. doing a bit of that. Um, uh, I, I, all I'll say is that it just, it's just kind of wild how, how relevant some of the storylines of Greek mythology, tragedy, the operatic nature of it all are to what's happening societally today, you know, especially with Wounded Fawn, you're talking about private justice, accountability, um, you know, of course, like operatic demise. Um, that was that psychological torture and phantasmagoric DNA was so inherent in those old tales and stories and you know, dealing with the underworld and Irenaeus and everything else. Um, it's just kind of wild. And that's, that's a big reason why I said absolutely yes to Travis when he asked if I was still performing and would I be willing to look at a script was this is basically Patrick Bateman at the Evil Dead Cabin, but the, the, yes. the deadites are the are the greek goddesses of vengeance you know it's like what's more fucking visionary than that it's just so fresh and on top of that you have the 16 millimeter of all it's like wow oh. yes um yeah so fond is certainly a bit darker um than yeah. a couple of your previous projects um are you as a creative headed in that direction because I've heard some things I think you have a project you've been shopping around surrogate and yeah, yeah graphic novel you have coming up next year that I think is 
supposed to be relatively twisted. Yeah, that's right. You've done your research. So yeah, Surgot is actually, I'm producing for uh, uh, this amazing duo, filmmaking duo, Sam Marine and Michael Borachek. Um, and they they wrote this incredible possession thriller. We've got a really rad cast, including my buddy Francesca Real from Stranger Things and Tony oh, Cavallero and Dagmar Dementic and stuff. Um, that one is very dark. It's definitely, it's more of a nihilistic possession thriller. It's, it, it's intense, it's bloody, it's scary. It's really, really chilling. I want to push myself um, as a filmmaker to lean more into horror, but I think as far, when I step behind the camera, I'm just kind of inherently, I don't know, a, a funny dude who grew up on the levity of Amblin, you know, and stuff. So I'll probably always be doing stuff that leans at its darkest, like Coen Brothers-esque, like a little esoteric and eccentric, but, but, but you know, dark. Um, I do want to push the horror in absolutely the next, you know, one or two horror films that I do, but keep, keep you laughing if possible, because even the great, the greatest horror films, I mean, even The Thing had moments of levity. You want to make sure you have that as levity, humanity, the more human, the more, you know, the kind of levity, the better. Um, because that really helps kind of offset or rather the, the, the scares offset the levity and vice versa. It's, it's, a, it's a valuable thing to have. So I wouldn't say I'm venturing into necessarily like dark territory, but it was so fun to do Wounded Fawn because it's essentially, it's, it's, a, it's a dream role, you know? Yeah. And so I apologize because you've probably been asked about this ad nauseum at this point on your podcast tour, no, it's but all good. the end credit sequence. Yeah. Um, joining Pearl from earlier this year as this like insane kind of becomes farcical but then swings back to like terribly effective disturbing yeah clip. yeah um I'm so glad that Shutter let it play out and it didn't do one of those like shrink screens here's what you should watch next um was that all scripted that way or were you kind of left to your own devices or that was like an idea between you and Travis Dale? How did that come about? Um, that even Travis doesn't quite remember what the kind of order of events for the ending sequence was. Um, I, my recollection of it was it was on the fly. It was, hey, what do you guys think about doing this in one take? And I was like, yes, absolutely. Sarah and I both were like, fuck yeah. You're over Sarah's shoulder watching this dude. She's almost like unimpressed by what's happening, which, which right. only adds to, I think, the beauty of it. And, and he's just like making such a temper tantrum show of his like playing himself. Um, and yet, you know, it still isn't the worst possible thing or the best possible outcome in that you know in that he he isn't taking accountability um uh i remember it being a last minute decision that's my experience of it and all of us especially since it was in the last like two days of shooting were just like yes you know especially because by then as travis uses the you know the sort of the allegorical terminology or um, the allegory is just like you know it's, we were we're a band you know and by that point by the end of the shoot you know that this band can you know, volley the solo to to me for something like this, or Sarah for something like her just Tiffany scenes, whatever. She can handle snakes on her head. I can handle riding around in the dirt, whatever it is. And we were just like, fuck yeah, let's try it. Okay, I was totally wondering if the snakes were real. I assumed they oh, were. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There were like 40 on set. It was crazy. <laughs> oh, that's wild. 
yeah we were all holding them it was, it was a good time <laughs> that's really cool you mentioned the you know in the sequence when he's flogging himself or he's flailing himself what what was the weapon that the bruce character was using i don't think i've ever seen yeah that. um that's it's called a a bog knock um and it's basically it's an exotic assassin's tool that originated from india um, designed essentially to make it look like that your victim was killed in a tiger attack. So um, I love that. Yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. Travis essentially Googled like cool murder weapons um, <laughs> and then found this thing. Beca and, and I love it because he, he, he mentioned, um, you know, Bruce is just being such a peacocking narcissist, know-it-all, uh, name dropper, what have you that he would have the vintage car no one else has, the cabin no one else has, the art no one else has, right down to the weapon. You know, as Travis phrased the other day, he's like, yeah, I'm not like the other slashers. I'm not like that Michael Myers guy. He just has a machete. <laughs> like I use a bog knock. That matches up so perfectly now that you say that. <laughs> yes, of course that character would have that particular weapon. Yeah, of course. He's <laughs> fucking, he's Bruce Ernst. I mean, come on, guy's a dick. <laughs> All right, well, um, let's jump over uh, for a little bit to Blood Relatives. Um, different which, flavor. A different flavor. Um, <laughs> you have a small role in that and you produced. Um, mm -hmm. And so obviously you were writer, director, and star for Scare Me, just yes. like Noah Sagan was on this project. Did you bring your sort of like triple threat experience into your role as producer to help him out? Um, I guess like wh what kind of producer were you? Because that title can mean a lot of different things depending on who's in the role. That's right, that's beautifully said. Um, it, uh, so he, he had seen, he had seen Scare Me and said, I have a script that that's very thought that 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 very size it was read like basically like a play. I mean, it's mainly the two of them talking. And um, he said, you know, I want to I want to do for myself what what you essentially did with Scare Me, which is do the triple threat thing. And he said, will you produce it? And I said, yeah, I'm not a paperwork producer. I'm not a budget producer. I'm a creative producer. So what I will do is everything from hook you up with actors or brainstorm actors who I have text relationships with. Like for example, Victoria Morales and I, we worked together on Natalie Morales' Plan B and we had such a good time together. I also like creeped on her, which was ridiculous that we did two movies back to back where I'm like being gross to her. We were laughing about that. Um, I will uh, offer visual suggestions. You know, if like Noah is concentrating on being a good acting partner, um, which he's on screen 90% of the movie, then I will go in there and I'll whisper in the cinematographer's ear, like, why don't we lower this camera a little bit or raise it up and just kind of vary up the, the visuals to make it more interesting or more emotionally powerful. Um, and Noah is often like super open to whatever, keep, you know, my keeping an eye on that stuff. And also sort of like directing Noah, you know, Noah, Noah would say, Josh, what do you think? Josh, what do you think? And I would adjust him. I would never adjust anyone else. Um, if I ever had a thought about anything anyone else did, like one moment I, I had a kind of a pitch for Vic, it always went through Noah. That's what you want to do as a producer. So really, like, depending on the scale of a film, it's, you know, your your background, in my case, the quote-unquote triple threat experience, 
it's it's everything it's everything from like asking cast and crew if they need anything or helping out like load out you know director's chairs or uh, uh you know be the last in line to get lunch because you want to make sure your crew eats and it's not a big deal if you have to wait another couple extra minutes you get the same amount of time um it's it's everything you can do to just like get the movie made and do so as creatively and and um collaboratively and humanely as possible it sounds like being a director helped you be a better producer i've never made a movie or produced or directed one but mm -hmm. i would imagine based off of that answer good producers are also good directors yeah i mean being a background actor made me a better producer working in college humor doing you know like setting up my own kino flows and working in commercials made me a better producer absolutely directing made me a better producer just because you you see how how wonderfully or how poorly other producers run ships um and boy have i seen some garbage you know garbage producers just real real hot trash and also just incredible producers who are just like spreading themselves so thin i mean they will they will be the toby mcguire spider-man like hanging on and no matter how tightly they have to to make sure that the subway doesn't crash or run off the rails you know that that is what the producer is to me is like the filmmakers just making sure that image looks good but the you know the producers truly like breaking their back to make sure that the thing doesn't you know go off the rails that you know money is spent a certain way and there are so many different kinds of producers i, I couldn't quite wrap my head around that as a as a young end but now i totally get it there are there are many different kinds yeah 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 it's awesome yeah uh, well of course you also you didn't just produce you did have a role in the film um you played this renfield type character um, oh yeah and you have this great scene where you're just sitting in a room with Victoria Morales. Um, I don't even think you get up from your chair, do you? I don't get up from my chair. Yeah. Um, and when you taste her finger, the way you reacted was the funniest, but like ickiest thing. And I feel like it's, what's coming to be like known at least in my head as like classic Josh Rubin and I don't know if that was Noah's direction or if that was your choice as an actor but it's well done thank you very much I mean this was one of the those wonderful moments as a producer where you get I'm sort of it's cathartic for me because I get to see my actor my director my actor and my director <laughs> um, and co-producer take a step back take off the costume and just be a director so mm -hmm. for me to come in and offer like my comedic expertise and just like be funny and kind of perform like for lack of a better phrasing, like for the crew to make people laugh, to like do my thing that I just know how to do, like roll out of bed and do, that felt really good because it was a tight and kind of stressful shoot. Um, Noah, I think had written that scene about the, you know, the finger, <clears throat> finger to the tongue in the script. I think it was pretty script accurate um but you know i, I just kind of went full weirdo like hannibal hog um on on vic it was just like all right let's see if you like it you know there's so many different versions of it there's like me like laughing for you know a very long take until i couldn't contain myself there's there's a there's a post credit scene where i happen to pop up in the back of the barracuda as if i'm <laughs> on the adventure with them like where are we going <laughs> but i just don't think it 
it just was so weird. It's just like it unfortunately didn't work. It was all kinds of shit we did with with Roger. Oh my god. Oh, I kind of want that post-credit scene. That's hilarious. I know. Yeah. I it's gotta it gotta end up on a, on some hard media someday. I know. As a big proponent of physical media, I hope that does end up being the yeah. case. Yeah. Same um, I do I do have to quickly ask, just because, but I'm gonna tie it back. Um, in addition to being a huge horror fan, I'm a pretty big musical theater fan. Um, and I know you didn't share any scenes together, but I'm assuming as a producer, you got to work with Tracy Toms, who has a small yes. and blood relatives as well. And I've heard she's actually a pretty big horror fan. So did you talk genre with her at all? I did. That was really fucking rad. Um, uh, I, I was so starstruck and was so like, I, I'm just going to keep it cool around her because I mean, I'd love her since, you know, rent or whatever. Yes. And she was there for Noah and loved Noah and worked in him. And I was also like, I, my brains blew out of my head when I realized like, of course you were in Looper too. That's how you guys met if they didn't know each other before. Um, mm -hmm. She's the waitress, I believe. And um, she's a big genre fan. She has a film she's working on. I actually tried to just to facilitate some conversations or some financing connections to try and get it get it done um she has like several ideas there's i mean i can, obviously can't say anything about any of them but there's like one idea in particular that's just like absolutely phenomenal she's working on it with a total giant um that i you know i you'd freak out if you knew any of what it was i just i hope that she can get it done because she's such an immense talent and um she is a dream to work with and so open to direction just so down i mean because she's done She's done it all. That's the beauty of working with someone in the background of theater is you're just like such a disciplined, sort of like down for whatever kind of player. You've seen it all, you've been through it all, you've worked on low budget, you've worked on high budget. It's the same thing with like Chris Red and Aya Cash, you know, having done so much television, but so much theater. You know, Chris as a stand up comedian and Saturday Night Live, Aya comes from, you know, plays the Labyrinth, Cherry Lane, you know, whatever. Um, uh, there's a certain kind of work ethic and playful quality that's just like unparalleled. Tracy has it. And yeah, I, <clears throat> she's a big genre fan. I'd love to work on whatever she, whatever she wants to in genre in any which way. That's so cool. Uh, I hope she can bring that one big project to light. Um, feels like it's getting harder and harder for projects to get the funding they need these days yeah it is it's a tough weird time right now but hopefully I have a feeling 2023 is gonna draw us out of this kind of nastiness because part of it is the the covid um protocol payment you know the ppe stuff um and that's definitely something to be considerate of but it's it's absolutely sort of it's crippling for an independent film um well there there are independent films being made i think the union sort of you know this is boring stuff i think they're sort of conceding to you know, we can't necessarily um, lead jurisdiction on or enforce certain rules, um, masking or whatever, but it's like what, you know, you add up testing, that testing your crew several times a week, hundreds of people that, that definitely, you know, that, that you, you all can take a hit. Um, and I think so what it's doing is it's making <clears throat> even independent or even, even I'd say big financing companies, it's making them more kind of reluctant and a little more choosy but I think 
I think the more we kind of, you know, live in this new age, this new world, I think, I think we'll, um, those will sort of be eased in various ways. We'll find, you know, solutions that are more cost effective. Good. I'm glad to hear some optimism from someone actually. I mean, I'm the- crossing my fingers and I'm saying all of it. <laughs> I'm going to cross mine too. I'm going to knock on all the wood. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess, so sort of looking ahead, um, you talked a little bit earlier about um, some of the projects you have coming up. Um, there's, of course, one potential project that, as far as we know, isn't on your plate yet, which is a new Darkman adaptation. Um, yeah. You've obviously been very vocal about your desire to do Darkman. Lots of horror fans are behind you as well, uh, us included. Um, I don't know if you've had meetings. I don't know if anything's in the work. Obviously, that's not our business. But I did want to know, what's like your pitch? Like, why are you the one who should do Darkman? Well, I can't. um, Thank you for saying that and for asking. I I can't. um, Well, I can't uh, pitch you the details of what my angle would be. I can tell Mm. you that uh, what I think is invaluable about it, especially in the in the age that we're in right now with horror becoming fun again and especially clamoring to like crack a new whatever uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, on the in the on the heels of Malignant, even with movies like Megan and Violent Night, there's this genre mashing and this kind of heightened world building that we're doing, but keeping things violent and wicked and fun and fast paced and such and such. And I think there's something about Darkman that combines in my the reason why I fell in love with him as a kid when I discovered that VHS tape is because I loved Freddy Krueger because he was like a twisted almost cartoon character and then I love Batman and Sam Raimi really wanted to make Batman and so what that what Darkman is to me is like Batman Freddy Krueger or horror Batman and a horror hero that isn't Hellboy is really really exciting and it's kind of wild like we don't have many horror heroes um there's a, a there's a book I've been dying to get for some time called Ecto Kid that I think Clive Barker conceived of, like Clive Barker has a horror hero concept. Um, there, there have been attempts. There, there are probably so many that I'm sort of leaving out. But Darkman has the opportunity to bring like some scares, some really delicious imagery and action, and also there's so much heart. There's so much opportunity for heart because it's essentially Raimi. Raimi was sort of homaging the universal monsters of it all. You know, this is a vilified sort of character who felt himself too ugly to be loved. And there's so much to mine from that, whether Liam comes back, whether he's an ancillary part of that idea or what have you. Um, uh, I, I think that there's something really incredible to to just kind of crack there. So yeah, I, I'm going to stand by. It's like, it's my, it's my white whale. And I can say that I've had meetings. I can't say what they've been about or who they've been with necessarily. I guess it's like right. sometimes. Um, but uh, but yeah, man. Um, it I think it'd be a dream, and I think I think it would. Uh, I think it. I think we're like ready for it. You know, for something that kind of twists twists the IP up a little bit. Yeah, it feels like the the right time for something like this. Um, and we're we're pulling yeah. we're rallying behind you. Tell us who to to call. We'll do it. Um, Well, Josh, 
Thanks so much for joining us. We do want to be respectful of your time, which we're coming up on. Um, but before you go, um, wanted to check with you about um, what are your uh, horror holiday traditions around this time of year? Um, you mentioned earlier you're getting ready for the holiday. I think we all are too. Um, are you like a watch Black Christmas every year kind of thing? Or um, is Krampus yeah. Uh, Krampus, I love that you say Krampus. Uh, I love Mike Doherty so much. I think he's such a genius. Uh, you forget that he's like behind these blockbuster Godzilla, King Kong mo movies. I think it's movies plural at this point. Um, right. And also, I mean, just as a, a child of the 80s who's got this incredible, almost Tim Burton-like artistic vision, um, I think Krampus is really, really kind of a triumph in its own way. I think it's super underrated. I, I dream of being able to host like a, a, a Q and A double feature with werewolves within someday. Dare I like compare myself remotely um, or that film remotely close. Uh, I, I think Krampus is fucking great. I also love, I think last year my wife and I watched Rare Exports for the first time and really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful film. It like looks insane. It's it's like what imagery? Um, it's a wild one. Um, but I I really love Krampus. I love I love Scrooge. Black Christmas was a recent discovery for me too. That one is just that's wild to discover late in life. I think the like the real Black Christmas lifers discover that pretty early. But um, yeah. it makes me want to uh, it makes me want to make a Christmas horror because uh, I feel like there aren't quite enough. There aren't quite enough holiday horrors. Oh, don't tease us, Josh. That would be so no, cool. No, it'd be a dream. It'd be a dream. I just, just because I like, just even watching the trailer for Krampus before I even saw it, I was like, fuck, this guy just cracked it. Damn, <laughs> it's brilliant. You kidding me? Yes. I feel like this year was, was some decent Christmas horror, like Violent Night, uh, yeah. Christmas Bloody Christmas. Um, yeah, yeah. Totally. There, there's, there's one with the Grinch that's out right now. That's right. That's right. From the makers of, I think of the Winnie the Pooh one, or maybe that's the thing of the Bambi movie they're going to make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we are, your, this interview is going to be attached to our episode where we do, we're going to cover Silent Night, Deadly Night, um, which I always mm. forget how bleak that movie actually is until I like watch it yeah. again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not as fun as, you know, like a Krampus or a, you know. Yeah, there's there's one that I want to to check out called Christmas Evil. I don't know if that's like yes. more fun. It is, I think. It's I know this word gets kind of overused a lot, but like it's kind of Lynchian. Is Ooh, that's like cool. Christmas Evil, yeah. Um I I like it. <laughs> Rad. Okay. Well, a word like that when it comes to Christmas, anything I'm 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 into, and uh, we'll we'll check that out. Very cool. Maybe it'll inspire you for this potential Christmas horror project. Yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> a dream. Uh, a dream. A dream. Well, it's also been a dream uh, having you with us here, Josh. Thanks so much for um, giving us some time, especially since you've been doing like, I think you said fifty of these interviews over the last month. Um, It'll amount to about 50 by the time I'm done. Yeah, I'd say in mid-January. Isn't that crazy? Ooh, hopefully you're giving yourself a little break to actually. Yeah, today's my last day. I've got, let's see, uh, I've got two more today. 
Um, you are my third for the day and there will be three, yeah, three of five, which is, which is crazy, but I'm enjoying every minute of it. It's amazing. It's a great way to like meet people, you know, and just kind of see people's different interview styles and have different kinds of conversations and ways in and, and perspectives too about these movies. It's cool. Awesome. That's really cool. Um, yeah. You seem to engage pretty regularly with your fans online. Um, which is yeah yeah I wouldn't be anywhere without them I mean the fact that like they they folks enjoy like my obscure uh black box theater like toxic (laughs) male space work movie and like my werewolf (laughs) movie that came out like smack in the middle of the pandemic or when we thought it was quote-unquote over it's just uh it's amazing they're they're all like you know the, the movies really do feel like children in a way and it's like wow you're recognizing my kid you know my kid up there on stage with the other kids so i'm a proud parent for all of them and so it's a, it's a nice <laughs> moment to not only promote the these two independent films you know everyone should check out shutter um but uh but also to kind of you know to to promote work that didn't get a shot in the theater yeah 100 percent um yeah and we definitely encourage all of our chatters if you haven't yet hop on Shutter and check out Blood Relatives and A Wounded Fawn. Uh, Scare Me is definitely still on there, I'm pretty sure. Oh, yeah. Is Werewolves Within still on Shutter? Uh, Werewolves Within, uh, it's not on Shutter. It's on uh, Showtime and uh, VOD, yeah. Okay, great. So Showtime and VOD is where you can find Werewolves Within. Um, we're we're happy and proud of your kids, too. We can't wait to meet the next <laughs> Um And... Thanks again, Josh. You are welcome back to Splatter Chatter anytime. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, and have a fantastic holiday. Yeah, same to you. Take care, man. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right, well, thank you once again to the amazing Josh Rubin. Um, We're so happy you were able to join us. Um, Chatters, if you haven't yet, check out Blood Relatives and A Wounded Fawn on Shudder. And of course, also, if you haven't yet, check out Scare Me and Werewolves Within. Um, Both are excellent. Um, All four are excellent, really. And we're really happy to to talk to Josh about some of that. Yeah, that was good to see. We're going to shift our attention um, back to the 80s to talk about one of the most controversial horror films of that decade. Um, The now cult classic Silent Night, Deadly Night. So we'll kick things off as we like to do with our opening question. When did you first see this movie and what did you think about it? So this is my first time actually sitting down watching it in um, because I think it just like it was kind of like I remember seeing bits and pieces but like it was never something that was played a lot because I think people were like you know now people like it and it's since kind of like retroactively been like seen as like oh yeah like you know this kind of got a bad rap but um yeah this would I would say is my first full sit down and watch nice yeah um did it so that's interesting because you obviously had a lot of knowledge about the controversy and the story behind it before seeing it um and I guess we'll probably get into this a lot later but like did you find it like offensive or anything 
I didn't. You know what's <laughs> funny is I kind of agree with I think it was the actress who played um uh Mother Superior was saying that she was surprised that the controversy focused on the Santa aspect and not like the portrayal of like the Catholic Church as like also horrible. Right. In this, which is what I would think people would find more offensive than, especially too, because other things have done like the Killer Santa thing before this movie mm -hmm. came out. Um, so you know, I I I did a little diving on that to try and figure out what thread or what chord, rather, I guess it it particularly struck with people, but um. I didn't find it. I mean, it's one of those things where you always look back at movies that were controversial and you're like, really this? But, um, right. You know, I, um, I don't know. Like I, I thought it was like, cause to me, the Santa aspect like made sense in within the context of the movie. And that like was earned. It wasn't just like them being like, you know, weird about it. It was like, no, this makes sense. And this is weirdly like complicated. <laughs> um yeah to to me um so yeah i'm surprised to hear it got such like um nuts response yeah like you were saying it feels like the protesters missed the mark about what is actually edgy about this movie yeah. um but i i you know i i think maybe in the context of the time in which it was released uh it just happened to come at the wrong time. Yeah, or it was yeah. like a scapegoat for like, you know, a bunch of other, like this was a proxy war, uh, right. you know, with other stuff. But um, yeah, it sure, it sure, you know, tweaked out the, the studio. Yes, it did. Yes, as we will get into. Unfortunate. But uh, when was your uh, first first viewing i think it was sometime in college mm -hmm. um you know i was i was aware that it had been controversial at the time i knew sort of like the bullet points of what had happened it was hard to find for a while mm -hmm. uh, and so i didn't see it for a long time but it like was on my radar kind of thing and then I think, yeah, I think it was like one December in college. I was like, you know, just scrolling. <laughs> yeah. And it was just like, oh, totally night. let me finally see. Um, obviously, I think now because of all the many, many things that have come afterwards. I mean, look, we've got like, there's two movies out right now about killer Santas and no one's killer batting Santa. it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I found it kind of, kind of tame in terms yeah. of like the the killer santa aspect of things i think this movie is disturbing in other ways right like i just remember sitting through i was like this is like a weirdly like you know like the real villain here is like the lack of like mental health care and like <laughs> you know all this other stuff and this kid being in a santa costume like just you know that feels like weirdly like oh, it's like poetic, like they're, you know, like they're doing like, you know, it, it makes so much sense. And like, it's surprising how like much care was taken into like doing the killer Santa concept, especially compared to like, as you said, like a couple of the other killer Santas we have like on the way this year in terms of like how they're doing it. Right. And like, 
I mean, to, to sort of split hairs, like, it's, the, Santa is not a killer. It's someone yeah, it's a dressed guy dressed as Santa. Yeah. yeah, it's not like Santa Claus, the mythic figure, is murdering, you know, yeah. Um, he's not coming it's not like the episode of family guy where stewie and brian like break into the house <laughs> as santa and then like end up murdering that entire family <laughs> well, i've been to one house it's been an hour and a half <laughs> um but yeah like the i don't know it's just one of those it seemed like it came at a time when people were looking to get upset about something yeah yeah and we know that like the, the, the 80s were a strange decade yeah um yeah so let's talk a little bit about the background of this movie um things really start get rolling uh when scott j schneid who is a hollywood producer decides he's going to have a screenplay contest that's open to the public um to get ideas for what he wants to produce next and there's one entry um, a short that was titled He Sees You When You're Sleeping that catches his attention because it has to do with, and I think actually has the phrase killer Santa yeah. in, within the, the writing of the text. Um, so he's like, cool, great, this is it. Um, he hires Michael Hickey, who is an established screenwriter, to write a full screenplay for based on this idea that they then pitch to TriStar Pictures, who agrees to finance it under the working title Sleigh Ride. S-L-A-Y. Yeah. Ride. <laughs> and there's now there's a Christmas horror movie called Santa's Sleigh um, that oh. jumped on that. I've never seen oh, it. Oh, I Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, but they bring in, or uh, Schneid brings in Ira Richard Barmick and Dennis Whitehead to co-produce alongside him. And the three of them start looking for a new young director that they hope will be, in their words, the next John Carpenter by directing this movie. That is not what happened. That is not what happened. <laughs> <laughs> for anyone involved. And so as they're looking for this person, uh, they consider um, a couple of names who are established now, uh, Ken Quapis, Albert Magnoli, and Sam Raimi. Um, but they pass on all of them and end up settling on Charles E. Sellier Jr., who prior to this had mostly been a television producer um, and had gained some attention in Hollywood for producing the movie Life and Times of Grizzly Adams and the subsequent TV series based on that movie. So um, he comes on board. Our um, lovely little writer whose idea this was initially is not at all involved <laughs> in, at, at this stage. Do you, actually, do you want to tell us the, the sort of... Yeah, so I, first of all, like, you know, the screenplay contest, like, unclear to me whether they actually won something or they just sifted through and cherry picked ideas <laughs> i couldn't find anything on if there was like a prize or it was just like hey we picked your thing now it's a yeah. movie but the student who wrote the it well the 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 screenplay contest the the kid who like wrote the he, he sees you when you're sleeping was a student at harvard um mm -hmm. named paul kaimi who um 
they gave a story by credit to as a shadow, but it is unclear to me, and I think probably unlikely that he was paid. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking nope. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, good for him. Yeah, good for him. Um, not everyone gets an idea made into a movie, whether they're involved or not. He's probably fine. He's fine. Um. Yeah, and this really, this you know, this movie, it's not a star vehicle of any kind. It, it wasn't, like, meant to sort of, like, be anybody's comeback or be a headline for anybody at all. It, I think it was more like an idea movie. Um, there are just no major well-known actors featured in the film. Most of the cast were local regional actors from Utah, which is where they filmed. Um, Robert Brian Wilson, who plays Billy, he had no acting experience prior to this, and he didn't even want to audition, but his girlfriend um, sort of like coaxed him. Babe. Babe, I think you'd be really good as that. What is it? It is funny that he has Killer like... Santa. <laughs> Killer Santa. It is funny that he has no prior acting experience, because I feel like that scene where they reveal adult him, he looks like such like the buff actor type. Yes, he's in that weirdly homoerotic scene. It seems like the guy who owns the toy store is like, we'll talk about it maybe later in View from the Closet. I was going to say, you just came up with my view from the closet. (laughs) We'll go into detail that later, but um, Um, no, it is weird, and it's something I um I always forget about because I I I think I've only seen this. This is maybe the third time I've seen this movie when I watched Mm -hmm. it for this episode, and I usually watch it with like I don't know kind of years in between and I always forget kind of how hot Billy is when he's he grown really, up yeah he's really good looking I was surprised yeah but he um Robert Brian Wilson this was sort of you know he had no prior acting experience before this and he has continued to act but um it was mostly actually now that I'm taking a quick glance actually it was entirely in tv mm. uh, he was on Houston Nights. He was on Dynasty, Knots Landing. He did some TV movies. His last credit is a uh, Christmas movie, TV called A Husband for Christmas. A Husband for Christmas. I love those dumb movies. <laughs> From 2016. So Wow, so he's still doing... I mean, like, maybe not now, but he was doing stuff up until somewhat recently. Somewhat recently. Um, uh, Yeah. Um, So, right, yeah, not a huge star vehicle. They film in Utah um, between March and April of 83, mostly in Midway and Harbor City. They did all the exterior shots first because, you know, that was like, that's like, late winter into spring like so the snow, snow was yeah uh the orphanage saint mary's home for orphan children had been an abandoned schoolhouse that was demolished shortly after filming and iris toys was a vacant building that was rented out by the crew and as of this recording that building still stands and is currently operating as a gym thanks so if um you have a particular attachment to iris toys you can go work out there. Yeah, you too can uh, can look like Robert Brian Wilson in his uh, yeah. reveal shot. His reveal shot. Uh, Sally actually found 
uh, large parts of the movie uncomfortable, particularly the murder scenes. And so he was not able to be on set to film them. So the so editor picked this guy for this movie as the next right? carpenter. Yeah, and then he's like, I can't handle it. Um, so the editor, a man named Michael Spence, stepped in to direct those scenes. Um, nice. And then in once the film was finished, uh, TriStar decided to change the title from Sleigh Ride to Silent Night, Deadly Night. And um, it was at this time that graphic designer Bert Klieger created the now infamous promotional poster for the film, which features Santa Claus going down the chimney with um, the double-bladed axe in his hand and the uh, tagline, you've made it through Halloween, now try and survive Christmas. Nice. And that's really what um, kick-started like the protest was actually like mm. the promotional material and the marketing for this movie. It wasn't like the movie came out and then people started protesting after having seen it. It was like people were upset by the way the movie was being marketed. Which... Like knowing that specifically about the poster and that like gives me other theories too for why people like really were starting to tweak out about that sort of thing um, mm -hmm. that we can get into during our analysis. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then like you mentioned slightly earlier, um, it, you know, it was interesting that there kind of was a controversy surrounding this because the producers weren't really expecting it. Like there was some disagreement over what was actually gonna be controversial about the movie because A Killer Santa um, had actually been featured in um, Tales from the Crypt in the first segment of that movie in 1974. And it was the premise of another holiday horror movie, Christmas Evil from 1980, um, which is a wild, almost Lynchian kind of movie. Um, but the, so, you know, like we said before, like a lot of people involved in the making of the film are actually surprised that people were as upset as they were. Um, and some people have speculated, I think one of the producers, Wilson has said something that they felt that if the movie had been released around Halloween, it wouldn't have gotten as much attention as it did, as much negative attention at least. Yeah, I can see that because then it's like everyone's focused on, you know the holiday like everyone expects movies like that like to come out in October and like right kind of just takes it as part of the course yeah um so yeah let's talk a little bit more about Wilson and the rest of our cast through our roll call um do you want to get us started on that who's who's involved here sure so we have starring Lillian Chauvin as Mother Superior um it was great. Yeah. Terrible. Like, terrible person, not like. She's like, I remember thinking, like, throughout those scenes, I'm like, if she would just be, like, nicer to him or, like, show a little bit of empathy for uh, what this kid has gone through. <laughs> like, they Wait. treat it like they're like, oh, there he goes again, being, you know. Being murdered. Yeah, I can't believe Billy's still not over witnessing his parents' murder. Right? And well, and that's, I think, the thing about the movie, too. It's not just that Billy witnesses the murder of his parents by someone dressed as Santa Claus. Mm -hmm. It's that he witnesses that and then suffers years of abuse yeah. at the orphanage and, like, doesn't receive, I mean, he receives a little support from, is it Sister Margaret, I think? I think she's the nice one, yeah. Yeah. But it's like, it's not just that he witnessed a violent thing. It's that 
and the fact that he had a terrible upbringing after that you know yeah yeah so but she's a she's good in that character um she is i'm surprised the character doesn't get their comeuppance at the end yeah yeah well almost a little like it kind of is a little bit right because at the end with that last shot like the very end Mm -hmm. like it's hinting towards that um but um yeah it is surprising that like you'd think that you know billy might you know like it, it seems like i guess he's going for that like he's come back to the orphanage and stuff but um it is interesting that she is the other nuns like get murked but right not mother superior and i just i feel like a lot of other horror movies would she would be killed you know yeah the that would be like this thing, be like yeah bitch yeah right um we also have gilmer mccormick as sister margaret who is the only nun who's like what if we recognize that this boy is triggered by things and um and we were cool about that yeah because she pointedly was like oh my god do not dress him up as santa claus or like she gets the call or something about um yeah that situation and comes down she's literally like oh shit yeah um and unfortunately meets her end but she was she was a fighter while she was there Um, yeah i think she's the best performance in the film yeah she's good uh tony nero as pamela Mm -hmm. who you know Pamela as a character is confusing to me. Pamela, Pamela is, um, or is that the, which one is she? I'm trying to remember because they all have like, she's his co-worker. Okay. So she, she, is she the older woman? No, she's the the younger His his love interest. So it is who I thought it was. She's a confusing character to me. She is a confusing character. And it's, I get it, like, for the sake of the story, Billy needed to sort of be triggered, right, into mm-hmm. that first kill. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. But Pamela's actions are strange to make that happen. It feels very yeah. forced. Yeah, and then Pamela, like, you know, after her coworker is trying to, like, you know, sexually assault her, and Billy, like, saves her and ends up, you know, killing the guy, she's mad at Billy. For- yeah. <laughs> Like I don't, yeah. I don't know. That was a weird. It was. It felt like her, like in the way that it was played, that her sort of like rejecting him there and rejecting his actions is kind of like ultimately what what you know does it does it because then you know he kills her in like sort of retaliation, um, and then goes on his like killing spree of the the toy store and beyond. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like, I don't know. Yeah, I guess the implication is he would have killed Andy, I think, mm-hmm. um, and just, like, let it go. But because yeah. she, like, freaks out. Yeah. Because yeah, he, he keeps trying to tell her to, like, be quiet, be quiet, and... and Naughty. And then it's snowball. Yeah. Naughty. <laughs> um, and then for the introducing, uh, as well as the as credit, um, Robert Brian Wilson is as Billy Chapman. Um, mm-hmm. He's, you know, he's great. I want to know what conversation his girlfriend had with him to say you need to audition for this movie. Right? 
was she like did she did she like it was she happy about it are they still together yeah but um uh, he's good i love what they would do those those tight close-ups and he would just like shake like yeah. his way of like like being angry or being like unhinged is just he would stare and shake his head as if like convulsing or something saying that he's like losing it or whatever yeah um you know <laughs> I'm not. Uh, I'm not saying he's, you know, a uh, a generational talent, but um, no. But it's not like it's not like it's enjoyable. Yeah. yeah. For what it is, he's enjoyable. Exactly for what it is. Um, we have co-starring uh, Charles Deerkop as Killer Santa slash Linnea Quigley. Oh well, Killer Santa. Pause. Right. Yeah. They get like. A, triple billing yeah um, um he's creepy yeah he's he's fine and creepy um and disturbing like i understand why that would traumatize a child yeah um and then we have linnea quigley as denise the great is that his scream queen yeah um, is that his denise? mother denise or is that the, um, the other co-worker yeah, it's like the other when he breaks into the house and they they're all watching have his little girl. 1980s names. Oh, Denise. Yeah. Denise is the babysitter. My friend, yeah. my roommate, Denise. Denise. <laughs> um, yeah, she's you know. When you start to get into those like realms of like body counts and trying to remember like which sort Who's of names are you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's like she's good. Um. I like when she's like, we're doing our homework. Don't come down here. <laughs> she's like, her tits are out or whatever. Like, <laughs> um, and yeah, her counter counterpart to that uh, in that scene is Randy Stump as Andy. Is Randy as Andy. Randy is Andy. Great casting. Great. Uh, Britt Leach as Mr. Sims, the toy store owner, mm -hmm. who we'll come back to. <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> on, we're gonna return to him um tara buckman as ellie chapman uh who that is the older That's other co-worker she's i thought she was funny i thought she was great i liked i like a good um older or middle-aged co-worker woman who's got uh got tooed no that's mrs randall oh my god i don't know anyone in this movie right because no one says their name yeah, so who is it? I'm, I'm looking out because I'm oh, looking Oh, is that Chapman? Is that the mom? Ellie Chapman is, is their mother, yeah. Yeah, okay. She was fine. She yeah, she's fine. Whatever. <laughs> um, Will Hare as grandpa, very creepy. Very creepy. Um, I did laugh, though, at the line, Christmas Eve is the scariest night of the year. I'm like, who has ever thought or said that? <laughs> um yeah. i do like you know the way that you're not sure whether this guy is just totally fucking with everyone or he actually like goes into these disassociative states and like just doesn't know about it um right he certainly has a lot to say when he does say uh his piece about christmas and santa he sure does and i was like what was your experience like why do you yeah, yeah that's why i was like where is this coming from did grandpa like was he like in like a war or like you know? right. yeah. 
It's unclear. Something, something bad about down with grandpa. Um, and then the with credit goes to uh, Leo Getter as Tommy. Mm-hmm. Um, who is the younger brother? Is the boyfriend, I think. The boyfriend, god damn. See, I can't. Hold on, let me double check. All these people. Yeah, Tommy is Denise's boyfriend. Gotcha. Okay. Wow. Uh, Jeff Hansen as Jim Chapman, the dad. The dad, yeah. Typical dad. Yeah, typical dad. Um, when that scene, when that, when we first like open on them like driving to the senior home or whatever, mm-hmm. like I gave me Christmas vacation vibes. It does, but it's like off-brand Christmas music. Like none of it's yeah. real Christmas music. Yeah, and then like for like a hot second, I was like, "Is that Chevy Chase?" No, it's some no. guy. Yeah, it's some guy. It's it's apparently uh, Jeff Hansen. It's Jeff Hansen, of course. You you know, uh, the late great Jeff Hansen. Yeah. Um, we have Eric Hart as Mr. Levitt. I don't know who Mr. Levitt is. I don't know who Mr. Levitt is either. Sorry, Eric. A Madeline Smith as Sister Ellen. I think she's the equivalent of um, Specs in this. Because <laughs> there was one nun who was fully like, I fucking hate Billy. <laughs> and I want only bad things for him. Yeah, I think it was her. <laughs> um, so great. Good, good, good great. Amazing. <laughs> um, that is, of course, in reference to everyone's favorite nun from uh, from Sound of Music, who insinuates that Maria is a demon, and as we all need to know, that means something to her because she's a Catholic nun. <laughs> she's not just saying, not just saying it. Drop that casually. Um, H. E. D. Redford as Captain Richards, uh, the policeman. Mm-hmm. He's a fine, typical like horror police guy. Uh, Danny Wagner is eight-year-old Billy Chapman, um, who, who, like, I like how they were showing that, like, oh, like, Billy's getting, like, having a tough time because he's got that mullet. Like, he's getting edgy. <laughs> That's the reason. Yeah. He was good, though. I actually thought that kid was pretty engaging. He was good. He he did good in his scenes. He just looks nothing like either the younger <laughs> or older Billy. <laughs> Well, that's why I was like, what am I looking at? Like, I was like, I assume this is Billy. Like, this is obviously, this is who this is. But I'm like, this is a different person. It's a different person entirely. Um, Jonathan Best as five-year-old Billy Chapman. Good as a five-year-old. Um, yeah. It was fine. Yeah, And he looks more like um, Robert Brian Wilson than the yeah. middle kid. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Amy Stroyvesant as Cindy. I think Cindy's the little girl. Oh, maybe. Yeah. He gives the box cutter too. Yeah. <laughs> um, Max Robinson as Officer Barnes. Again, another typical mm-hmm. horror cop. Mm-hmm. And then finally, the end uh, credit end Nancy Borgenicht as Mrs. Randall. There's your Mrs. Finally, Randall. she was great. Yeah. I liked her. She was great. I think she's the like standout character for sure. Yeah. Good. I was sad when she died. I know she was having a good time at the Christmas party. <laughs> she was. She was ready to go. Um, I think we we hit all our fun production notes while we were talking about production. So would you like to tell us or or begin talking to us a little bit about the reception of this film? I would gladly like to. Um, so the film premieres on November 9th, nineteen eighty four. 
it makes 1.4 million over opening weekend, um, you know, kind of in spite of the protest, not a bad draw, but not a great draw either. It comes in eighth overall at the box office for that weekend, but it does outgross another slasher that was released on the same day, whose legacy is much, much stronger now, <laughs> which was A Nightmare on Elm Street. It's wild. Um, it is kind of wild. I do think, just as a caveat, I think Nightmare on Elm Street wasn't released on as many screens that mm-hmm. opening weekend. It's uh, also such a weird time to release Nightmare on Elm Street. Like, I understand releasing this in November, but releasing that right after Halloween is weird. Kind of odd, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, as history has shown us, Nightmare on Elm Street proved to be okay in the long run. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the total domestic gross did not end up being that much more than opening weekend. It earned about another million dollars um, over the next week or so because it was only in theaters for 10 days before it was pulled by TriStar um, as a result of the protests and the controversy. And so um, because the budget was around 750 grand, uh, the film made about a $1.75 million profit. Um which in money-making Hollywood terms is not great. At least it made money. At least it made money. Um, as one might imagine, not only was the public outrage um, towards the film very loud and very dominant, but the critical reception was not particularly happy either, at least contemporaneously speaking. There was one positive review from 1984 uh, that came from The Hollywood Reporter, um, they liked the cinematography, McCormick's performance, and Cellier's workmanlike direction. However, most reviews that you would find from the time um, were not favorable. Some highlights include calling the movie a worthless splatter film, a bomb, and one of the worst movies of all time. Uh, the famed movie critic Leonard Maitland denounced the movie entirely and remarked, What's next? The Easter Bunny as a child molester? I mean, there is a... Easter Bunny Kill Kill! Yeah. Uh, Which we covered in our most recent Booze and Booze, if you haven't listened to that. Oh yeah, we should do another one soon. You know, we are doing... That was like, we did that right at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah, it's been a hot minute. Um, Even... The great Cisco and Ebert, uh, they condemned the film and shamed all those involved in the production. Um, and any arguments the film was making about, you know, the commercialism of Christmas was believed um, to have been overshadowed by the off-putting graphic violence. See, the thing is, is I don't even know if it's making a comment about the commercialism of Christmas. I don't think it is either. Just because it's set in a toy store, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think that's anything. Yeah, because that's not that's not really the point. Yeah. Um, yeah, so tell tell us about these protests that we've been talking about. Tell us about the controversy. Yeah, so there was a lot of picketing that was happening, um, yeah. which seemed to have been organized by like parents and and um different like PTA type groups and that sort of thing. But there were some like um like big name people who were also protesting it one of which was mickey rooney um which is is ironic because um he would go on to appear in silent night deadly night five the toy maker (laughs) 
Um, though some people have theorized that maybe it had not been known as a Silent Night, Deadly Night film during the production. Um, Interesting. That or we all just stopped caring because it was at that point like 1991 or something like that. But um, yeah, so protesters would sing Christmas carols outside the theaters to try and reclaim the holiday (laughs) from um, the axe-wielding Santa Claus. And then, as we mentioned, um, pretty soon after release, TriStar pulled advertising for the film and then the film itself, um, which meant that producer Ira Barmack had to buy back. See, this is... (laughs) Uh, barback <laughs> the barback <laughs> the great barback buyback um, um, he bought back the distribution Bar-back. rights um they further rescinded the home video deals and at the time what would have been like an hbo release um some people have like retroactively thought that this had something to do with the fact that tristar's parent company was coca-cola who That's who had like a stake in like christmas advertising Mm. Um, but I don't know if there's anything like legit about that, but that was like one of the theories about why they were so quick to pull it. Um, because Coke called them up and were like, kill it. Yeah. Well, and, and one of the somebody who was like protesting was like listing off, like they would go on the news and talk about like all the other things that like is related to TriStar and other things you should boycott in, you know, relation to the company. So I feel like. You know, it was only a matter of time before people realized that, you know, Coca-Cola was the ultimate parent company of this um, mm. production company. So I think that's also part of why they um, they pulled it. Um, unfortunately for director Charles E. Sellier Jr., um, this was one of his last directing credits. Um, oh, no. He, uh, his, last. yeah. Um, his uh, his last credit was for 1985's The Annihilators. Um, after that, he would go on to work as a producer only, go back, I guess, to working as a producer, um, where he would produce over 30 movies, documentaries, and television episodes um, before um, he passed. But um, at least he still worked. Yeah, no, and he's. It seems like you know that's what his original his original job was and he seemed to have liked it um but yeah he really couldn't get a job after this um and the you know ultimately the rotten tomato score is 44 percent metacritic is 31 out of 100 imdb is 5.8 and letterboxd is three out of five so so it's been reclaimed a little yeah yeah i mean you know like i think controversies aside like no this is not some sort of like high cinema but it's not terrible like it has internal logic in it and it follows Mm. that and makes sense um yeah there are things to like about this movie yeah and and yeah and things to uh and to i think read into about it um Mm -hmm. which is a good segue into our analysis segment um yeah. Have you ever heard of the war on Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you should be uh you should be, you should have a pamphlet in your hands. Yeah, excuse me. Excuse me, um, sir. 
<laughs> the the term war on christmas is actually like you know from like the early 2000s from like conservative talk show hosts but it's like been a, a deal for a long time like sure. back in the 1920s like it kind of started as um this like anti-semitic blowback to like jewish citizens who were like protesting christian teachings in public schools mm-hmm. and, you know which turned into like you hate christmas um right. And then we saw this again in the 1950s in post-World War II when like everyone was hyper-religious because the communists were atheists and we had to be the opposite of them. Um, And again, like a lot of Jewish citizens were like trying to like say like, hey, like there's a separation of church and state um, when it came to like Christian focused Christmas decorations at like public and municipal buildings and that sort of thing. In the 1980s, there was, like, a lot of, like, post-Vietnam progressivism that was, like, happening. Um, like, that's when Happy Holidays starts is in the 1980s. Um, the Supreme Court... Daniel, I never knew that. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And the Supreme Court's actively, like, secularize, secularizing, that's close enough, public spaces. Um, like, they, they heard cases that forced the removal of the Ten Commandments signs from, like, outside public schools. Um, they, um, cases about, like, compelled prayer in public schools and then, like, determined that municipal and government buildings can't erect nativity scenes, which is something they were doing. Sure. Um, and as this was happening, obviously, people were, like, you know, responding to that and now in opposition to the secularization and viewing it as like an active attack on like Christianity as opposed to, um, you know, like display of, you know, one holiday over another. Um, so I think that's part of it. Like people, you know, like obviously people are talking about like they're mad that there's like a Santa with an axe, but I do think it is coming at a time when there's a lot of people being pissed about like having like their nativity scenes taken down from their like public libraries and and taking that as a personal offense and like that sort of thing. Yeah, Um, it's like, the thing about the war on Christmas is it doesn't exist. Yeah, no, there is, yeah. You know, it's just when we mention other holidays, people get tweaked out. But um, it is interesting though, thinking about, what you said about people really reacting big to that Santa coming down the chimney with an axe um, mm-hmm. and that being kind of the thing that people were, were tweaking out about because I feel like that's like a similar deal to like the whole point of like what Halloween was trying to say about like the anxieties people like white people in the suburbs have right? about like home invasions and that sort of thing and stranger on stranger violence and like I feel like Santa, like, coming down the chimney with an axe, like, hits on something where it's like, yeah, like, if you think about it, like, for two seconds, it is fucking creepy that, like, this is the story we tell. And, like, you you know, it's coming at a time when, yes, like, you have a history of, like, you know, a cultural memory of not that long ago, there were the Manson murders. And, like, um, you know, I I forget his name. We talked about him before, but that young boy who got kidnapped in the Sears... Um, who was subsequently murdered, who is like the entire beginning of Stranger Danger. Um, Adam Walsh. Yes, that happens in the the 80s. So like, I feel like that's got to be part of it too. 
Yeah. And the seventies were very violent and very mm-hmm. like grimy and dark for America, you know? So yeah, like coming out of that, like I totally get it. Um, and you have to think about too, like not justifying, but contextualizing, right? Mm-hmm. Like we live in this world now where there's the internet and there's streaming and, and most people don't have cable or read a newspaper or, you know, you kind of curate your access to media and therefore like advertising and marketing. But that wasn't the case in 1984. Everyone was exposed to the same things. Mm -hmm. And so when you have like a nation sitting down to watch Little House on the Prairie and then seeing an ad for a killer Santa movie, like it's a lot more exposure and it's a lot more, like now, kids wouldn't see that kind of advertising because it wouldn't be targeted to them or parents would have an easier way to like get that out of their hands. Yeah. So like, I get it in that sense Mm -hmm. where it was like, you're going to scare my kid. My kid's going to scare that Santa, you know, know, because like everything was advertised to everybody back then. And there wasn't really a way to turn it off or to curate what you were exposed to. That makes sense. Yeah, Not that I the reaction that. is justified, but yeah, I mean it's a big reaction, but it's also like yeah, like you know, a kid walking down the street sees the poster and is like, oh, I want to go see that Santa movie, or has to be like, mommy, why does Santa have an axe? What does that poster say? Right. Um, How do you explain that to a five-year-old? You know? Yeah. Which you know, and again, like it's funny that you say that because now we've got two like killer Santa movies out this year, and like everyone's fine with it because there is like ad targeting and algorithms that like will keep that away from you know people who wouldn't be interested for the most part um exactly like i'm sure if we mentioned that to like some of our friends who aren't interested in horror they wouldn't even know right like there are adults that have no idea these movies exist right now um but if it was 1984 they would definitely know yeah yeah, so it feels like a combination of that with just like all the anxieties of previous decades of violence and, you know, the politicization of like the December holidays and that sort of thing all coming together on this this unfortunate little movie. Totally. Um it was it was bad timing. <laughs> oh, just... boy. But things, you know, things eventually got better um you know if you'd like to tell us a little bit about that yeah so it wasn't all bad for this movie and it sort of grew and 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 ended up enjoying a decent um i don't know cult life um Mm -hmm. and that all kind of began or started to begin at least when um silent night deadly night was released on vhs in may of 86 there were a number of postponements and cancellations. So like some of these watchdog groups kept an eye on things. I think like the PTA, like the national mm-hmm. version of the PTA was involved in a lot of that. Um, but it was eventually released as well as on Laserdisc in 87 and then some VHS reissues, um, one in 87, one in 88, and then in uh, 1992. So there was enough demand for several mm-hmm. reissues. Because um, yeah, nobody could see it when it was in yeah, Because if you didn't see it in the first 10 days, you didn't see it. Um, 
Then the film was released as a double feature DVD alongside its sequel, Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2, in 2003, and again in 2007. It was released um, in 2012 alongside Part 2, once again, as a Christmas survival double, double feature and included some archival bonus features. I feel like I actually remember that coming out. Because um, I think that was right around when I actually watched it for the first time, maybe. Um, and then it was released on Blu-ray September 16th, 2014 by Anchor Bay with several new commentaries, um, but none with the cast. Then you've got the Two Disc Collectors Edition that was released December 5th, 2017 by Shout Factory. Um, this version, this is the version I have. It has a 4K resolution from the original negative that was sourced from the theatrical cut, um, spliced with some inserts of the unrated SD version, which makes for an interesting watch. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's Blu-ray and DVD copies in the collector's edition, audio commentary with Robert Brian Wilson and Linnea Quigley as well as with um, the executive producers, Scott um, J. Schneid and Dennis Whitehead, uh, Michael Hickey, the screenwriter, uh, Perry Botkin, the composer, and Michael Spence, the editor and director of the kill scenes. <laughs> um, there's also a documentary on the making of the film, the original theatrical trailer, uh, the original radio and TV spots, and all those special features from the previous releases. Nice. At this time, Scream Factory also released 2000 limited edition col deluxe collector's editions, which included everything described above, plus a poster of, you know, the original um, chimney one and an eight inch action figure of Billy dressed as Santa with the axe. Nice. If you scored one of those, good for you. And then the film was followed by four sequels, making it a verified horror franchise. Uh, began with Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2 in 1987, where Billy's younger brother, Ricky, takes up the killer Santa mantle, as implied by the end of the original film. Naughty. Naughty. Um, then you had Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 3, better watch out! Uh, in point. There sure is. In 1989, um, Ricky sort of remains the focus of that one. And then four and five have no connection whatsoever to the Billy Ricky situation. Four, Silent Deadly Night 4 Initiation 1990 is a supernatural witch Christmas movie. Um, and then Silent Deadly Night 5, The Toy Maker, which Miss Mel mentioned earlier from 1991, is a possessed toys movie. There was also a loose remake in 2012 starring Jamie King and Malcolm Adele called Silent Night. I and remember then, when that movie came out, that remake. Yeah. I think that was like honestly like maybe my first like sort of introduction to this movie is that I saw that this movie came out and I was like, what is this? And then I saw it was a remake of something. Um, that one also has a wild poster because it's like Santa with a flamethrower. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then last year, actually, in March of 2021, uh, Orwell and Black Hanger Studios actually got the rights to the original movie and announced that they were going to do a reboot. Be fun. So be on the lookout for that in the coming years, I would imagine. Yeah. And that's uh, that's sort of the legacy of Silent Night, Deadly Night. It's definitely um, a, a cult movie for sure. 
Um, but I feel like it has gained a lot of traction. I feel like it is regularly talked about when people are like Christmas horror, you know, mm-hmm. like obviously. Yeah, I feel like it's that in Black Christmas come up. Like, also. yeah, Black Christmas is sort of like the gold standard. You got Christmas Evil in there. You got Gremlins, mm-hmm. um, Krampus. But, you know, in terms of like your slashers, this is one of the big ones now. So in terms of one good scare, do you have a moment from this film that you find a little frightening? What's funny to me is like, and I don't know why like this was, but when I was like like 12 or 13 years old, like I had gotten like, this, it's so funny because it's a very visceral thing, so it's not going to sound scary, but I'm going to try and like <laughs> set the scene for you. Yeah. So it was like around right. Halloween, and we were going, me and my parents were going to a Christmas party or a Halloween party, um, like at a family friend's house. But, um, you know, we had to like drive there and stuff, and it was kind of dark out, and we kind of had to go on some back roads. It's when we were living in Arizona, so <clears throat> it was kind of like, you know, back desert roads and stuff. And like earlier in the night, I had been watching some dumb like Discovery Channel thing about like, you know, like people telling outrageous stories that did not happen um, about things that, you know, they claim to experience. And one guy ex- claimed that he um, stumbled upon, you know, he didn't say it, but like what was clearly supposed to be vampires, like feeding on somebody on the side of the road. And I'm like, whatever you thought that was, you probably should have like called the police if that's true. <laughs> None of this happened. But anyway, <laughs> um, as we were driving, we had, you know, we were driving, you know, we were, we were driving, you know, down this dark road all by ourselves. And we eventually turn a corner and like there was this car that was stopped on the other side of the road and had its lights on bright. And I like tweaked out. I was like so freaked out because I had watched that thing earlier and I was like oh my god like some crazy person's gonna be in there obviously nothing happened we went to the Halloween party but all that is to say I still think about that so when they turn the corner and come across the Santa killer like waving them down with his like um you know supposedly um wrecked car or whatever like that oh that like creeped me out because i was like everything that happens after this is like my my big fear of what would happen in that in that scenario it is creepy that that shot and the lighting i'm always like don't stop yeah. <laughs> just keep going yeah but they don't no yeah. yeah what about you um I find myself, I'm, I get disturbed in the scene um, where the mother superior ties him to the bed Mm -hmm. um, as a punishment, you know, and he's just, he's so like viscerally upset and like begging for her not to do that. And, you know, Mm -hmm. Margaret is there and it's just like, it's very cruel and icky and yeah, yeah. bombs me out. It's kind of it's kind of a bleak movie, this movie. Yeah, no, then that's what I was thinking of. I was like, it's all very tragic because like this was a kid who like you know went through something terrible, didn't get help, and like, yeah, ultimately this is how he ended up and still yeah. really didn't get help, you know. Yeah, no. Get shot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like when he at the end and he says it's okay, like Santa's gone now or something like that. And yeah. It's kind of sad. 
And yet for all of that, it's still like, does a really good job of bringing you like the feel of Christmas. Yeah. Like, you know, how some movies are like, this movie is set at Christmas time, but it doesn't have anything to like do with it. And if we set it mm. a different time, it still would have happened. Like this movie feels like Christmas. Yeah. Um, so you still got to give it that, even though it is kind of like a bummer. Um, but we did <laughs> kind of alluded to this earlier, but like the view from the closet. I think there's one big moment that really jumps out. Yeah. So when he there's, you know, one of the nuns, the good nun, who we yeah. determined was Sister Margaret. Sister um, Margaret goes to Mr. Sims, who like I guess they occasionally like send their orphans to work for him. Um, and they're like, we have somebody for you. And Mr. Sims like, no, like, this is a job for a man. I need a man, not a boy. And Sister Margaret does this weird reveal. And she's like, oh, I see. I understand. And like, he's like, Billy, come here. And Billy shows up and he's in like, I don't know if he's in short shorts or I just put that in my mind, but he's definitely in like a cutoff, like, <laughs> t-shirt and like standing there like all buff and smiling and very handsome and mr sims is like oh what (laughs) it's supposed to be that he's excited that there's this strong man here to help him lift boxes but it does not come off that way it does not come off that way at all and i think just the insistence on like like you were saying like he's just like i need a man man three times he's like this is a job for a man he needs to lift things he needs to be able to get sweaty <laughs> yeah yeah and then like yeah just sort of like the like the oh my elation when he actually sees billy and then yeah and then plus like at the christmas party that the staff of the toy store have i feel like mrs randall is trying to like have a good time with Mr. Sims and he's like not interested. Yeah, there's something going on there. <laughs> yeah. Cause he's like, I don't know, I guess he's like distracted by Billy. Yeah. Yeah, that that was that really, you know, it was the combination of like his reaction and then like how just completely like very homoerotic they made Billy look and that pan up to reveal yeah. uh adult billy was just wild and i don't know if it's that i look back at a lot of 80s men and say like wow that was really kind of gay and at the time it probably wouldn't have seen that way it's just you know the the vibes that we we get now um... well and i also just thought of now when he has the like the dream or the fantasy of Mm -hmm. having sex with pamela Mm -hmm. the camera spends a lot of time on his body as Mm -hmm. well in that yeah. fantasy sequence, which I think is unusual for an 80s sex scene. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. Something to explore there. So, well, is there anything else we have forgotten to explore or that needs to be said about Silent Night, Deadly Night? I don't think so. I think, uh, <laughs> I think uh, it's, you know, and I actually think it might be an interesting double feature with like Black Christmas if you've never seen it before. Um, yeah, just because or Christmas Evil. Or, yeah. Well, you know, it's it's different. 
<laughs> it's it is different um not as not nearly as gory i think there's a lot of other slashers at the time were yeah um well i mean you know it's not that it's not one, you know the one scene that sticks in my mind is like the antler scene the antler. i think that's the goriest part of the movie yeah that's pretty that's up there yeah i feel like um the other one i was thinking about was when he chokes andy strangles him with the lights the christmas lights mm-hmm. which now you have to do in like every single christmas horror movie ever like someone yeah. has to get strangled with christmas lights but yeah. i think this is the first time it happened the first uh the first christmas light strangulation kill yeah and then the rest are I'm trying to remember well shoots mrs randall with the arrow mm-hmm that's not particularly gory. Which, like, is a toy arrow, but that's fine. Yeah, I was like, they're selling real arrows to show. <laughs> um, and I think there's a hammer kill. Mm-hmm. Because the 80s loved hammer kills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's it's a, not. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, all right. Let's close and wrap up the gift box here on silent night deadly night um and in so doing wrap up episodes of splatter chatter for 2022 um which is kind of wild um be on the lookout for our uh end of year rankings those will be on their way as well. And then we'll talk a little bit about what we've got coming up. But first, if you want to talk to us about Billy or creepy Mr. Sims or Mother Superior or any of the amazing things we chatted about with Josh, um, you can get at us in a number of different ways. Miss Mel, where can they find us? Well, they can find us first and foremost on Twitter chatter 666 minus all the vowels um you know just give us a search and we'll pop right up you can email us at splatterchatter669 at gmail.com um you can send us a what do they call those an ask on tumblr at a uh, splatterchatter.tumblr.com a uh, friend of the pod uh miss colleen will be happy to to give you an answer um you can leave a comment on the blog at splatter-chatter.com. Mm-hmm. And then to round out our social media, we do have an Instagram at splatterchatter666. That is correct. Mm-hmm. And if you are interested in um, checking out some of our other seasonal holiday episodes, please take a listen to episode 14, where we discuss a number of holiday horror films um, just very quickly and in general. Episode 58, where we cover Black Christmas. Episode 59, where we take a look at Terror Train. Episode 74, where we tell some Christmas ghost tales. Our seventh Booze and Booze episode on all the creatures we're stirring. Episode 81, where we cover Krampus. And our December episode from last year, episode 93, where we take a look at Anna and the Apocalypse. So lots of content for you during this crazy, busy holiday season. Um, when we return in the new year, um, we actually kick things off with a Friday the 13th in January, mm-hmm. which means 
it's time to return to our Friday the 13th spooktacular episodes. And it means we have finally gotten to the film Miss Mel has been dying to cover since we decided to start doing this series of episodes. Ladies and gentlemen, we will be covering Jason X. I had this date circled on my calendar. <laughs> so be on the lookout for that in January. Um, until then, we want to wish all of our chatterers uh, happy holidays. Have a fantastic December season, whether you're celebrating or not. Um, we'll see you in the new year. Don't forget to keep up the creep. And for now, we'll say au revoir, adios, das Thank you once again to Josh Rubin.